The World Changing Women podcast is brought to you by Conscious Company Media, building a community of leaders who are doing business better. Learn more about Conscious Company Magazine, events, and membership at ConsciousCompanyMedia.com. This episode is also brought to you by the 2019 World Changing Women Summit. Join us January 28th through 30th in Santa Cruz, California to nourish yourself, connect with other women in leadership, and elevate business. For more information, visit ConsciousCompanyMedia.com backslash Women's Summit. That's ConsciousCompanyMedia.com backslash Women's Summit. You're listening to the World Changing Women's Podcast, where each week we talk to badass female founders who've built game-changing brands that are making the world a better place. It's not a big stretch to make work meaningful for people. It's a combination of trusting them a lot, developing a community of people where the expectation is we are going to care about one another. If you're a beer lover, you know New Belgium Brewery, makers of beer like Fat Tire, Citradelic, and Voodoo Ranger. As of last year, the brewery, based in Fort Collins, Colorado, was the fourth largest craft brewer in the United States and the eighth largest overall brewery in the country. What many people don't know, though, is that it's a woman behind the brewery's success, Kim Jordan. As the co-founder of New Belgium and its CEO for the majority of the life of the company, she has built a beloved brand. And I'm not just talking about the beer. New Belgium is consistently ranked as one of the best places to work in the country. It's a certified B Corp, and the company is officially 100% employee-owned. In this episode of World Changing Women, we'll hear the inside story of how Kim started a brewery out of her own kitchen, what it took to grow that company into what it is today, and why she decided to sell her entire company to her team. Welcome to World Changing Women. Today we are delighted, honored, humbled, excited, all of the wonderful things that we could be to be sitting in the same room with Kim Jordan. We couldn't be more excited to welcome you to the World Changing Women's podcast. So hello, Kim. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here too. We do want to hear a little bit about the founding story. Where did the idea for New Belgium come from? We'll start in the way back. My then husband, Jeff Liebisch, and I started New Belgium in the basement of our house. So it's really one of those kind of quintessential American success stories, which I like to point out just because, you know, you have people who have cap tables full of investors and we took out a second mortgage on our home. We maxed out our credit cards. We got those things in the mail that said, you've been pre-approved for a line of credit. Jeff was an electrical engineer, so he got those. Social workers don't really get those kinds of things. But we looked at all of those sort of crazy sources in the beginning to start the brewery. The idea for it was really Jeff's. Jeff was a home brewer, and he had traveled in Europe and wanted to emulate some beers that he'd had there. And he traveled specifically in Belgium, where he went to a famous beer bar in Bruges, and because of a set of circumstances, got to sit with the owner by himself for a couple of hours one afternoon. And this guy just walked him through 
what makes Belgian beer so special. And I think he really decided then, you know, that would be a really interesting take on what was a very nascent industry at the time, microbrewing. Fast forward, we started dating. And honestly, I think Jeff realized as we got to be more serious that I could run the front of the house of the business. He's a classic engineer, very bright, very introverted. And, you know, this is the hospitality business. And so we're craftspeople, but it's also an act of generosity and care to make sure that your relationship with your customers, for us beer drinkers, is warm and outgoing. And I think that our skill sets really meshed nicely together to kind of create one whole that was more than the sum of either of the parts. Making sure I have my timeline right. So he went to Belgium, sat down with this brewery. He had this idea, and then you started dating. Yes, so he did that in mid-1988, and we started dating in late 1988 and married in 90, started building the brewery onto our house in March and sold our first beer at the end of June in 1991. What did that conversation look like with someone who you just started dating who said he had an idea for a brewery? Were you all in right away, or did he have to convince you over time? The conversation came a little bit later. I don't think he was ready yet then. It was, you know, just kind of an idea in the back of his head. But by that time, we had decided we were getting married. And I just really couldn't fathom saying to someone who's your partner, no, you need to have a job where you can support a family and... I think that's an entrepreneurial trait, and I think it's one that I know that I possess, sort of a feeling of saying yes and not being overly fearful about that. I always felt like we could go back to our day jobs, but I never really had a sense of doubt or dread, or it just seemed like a really fun journey to start as a brand new married couple. How did you get to that place? Is that just part of your personality? The kind of no fear, eager to try, excited to do new things, and if we, if this doesn't work, we can move on? Because that doesn't seem to be the typical mentality of most people today. My family is pretty liberal. My dad was a fairly committed feminist. You know, he really wanted to raise a competent daughter. I have two brothers. I'm in the middle and I'm the only girl. My first W-2 job was working at a gas station. So this was 1972 or 73. So that wasn't really something that, that girls did back then. And I just, I've worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service. I've been a caretaker at a racehorse ranch. I've done a lot of different kinds of things. You know, I graduated from high school when I was 16 and moved to Colorado by myself when I was 17. So it's just sort of part of who I am to kind of say, well, let's try this. And if it doesn't work, we can always, you know, go to plan B, whatever that is. So beer was not on your radar until this point in your life. You didn't have aspirations growing up as a child. To be a brewer? Yes. No. Now, although my great-grandfather was a brewer in St. Louis, so that's really just kind of happenstance for my story. 
it was always my drink of choice. It was just always my thing, beer. But I did not have any ideas of being a business person either. So when did it make the transition from homebrew to actually selling these? And what did that transition look like for you? Before we actually opened the doors, Jeff was homebrewing and we would go to like a bluegrass festival and pass out free beer. And it was actually, you know, that would have been a time that the whole thing could have gone sideways because it was hard. The beer that we thought would be our flagship beer was Abbey, which is a Belgian-style double. It's very malty. And so we'd go to these things, and I would pass out, you know, I'm the front of the house, right? I would be passing out beers, and you could just see people were like, I don't really like this beer. I hope she doesn't come back. And I remember <laughs> at one point, like, putting the beer away and kind of sitting in it. We had a hotel room where there was this festival going to our room and just sitting down and thinking, I don't want to go back out there and do this again because they don't seem very happy to see me. But, you know, again, I'm, um, I, I'm not afraid and I have a fair amount of grit. And so, you know, you just keep going. So that was pre-selling beer. We built the brewery in the basement. And our timing was really good in terms of a dawning awareness in Fort Collins of craft beer. And there was a real demand. I'm curious in these early days, what were the big important steps, that you, the first ones that you took, especially your role was more front of house. So how did you actually start establishing a business? Well, it was much more rustic than that, I would say. For starters, by this time we had one kid and I worked four days a week because I had insurance and we were also trying to have another kid. So I would work four days a week and on my day off, I would call all of our accounts in the morning and then I would deliver beer all afternoon and then I would pick my son up from preschool and he would sit in the car with me while we drove around delivering beer to other places so that at least we were together talking about, you know, our days and that kind of thing. And typically at night after he would go to bed, I would go to Kinko's and make little colored copies of our labels to make table tents and posters and things. It was a very handmade operation. The branding that we did was really just the point of sale, the labels. And we did that with a woman who was our neighbor. I would sit down at the table with her and she and I would sort of dream up, you know, what is the scheme of the whole thing, which, you know, you have a logo lockup, you have a name down here, you have hops on the outside of the label. Our original labels had a, a similar template but with different artwork and different color schemes in each one. And she and I dreamed that up with the help of some friends. And, you know, that was our first sort of brand concepting and testing with people we knew to say, well, what do you think of this one compared to this one? So there were no big market research studies. In fact, in the very beginning, we didn't really have a business plan other than knowing that if we could sell 90 cases a week, we could make money. 
I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and founders who talk about that stage right there where they're working another job. They often have a kid. They're doing this in the hours after the kid is going to bed on the weekends. And oftentimes they talk about that as a really rough time in their life. And they kind of have this sense of, I don't know how I got through this. I'm curious how that was for you. Were you excited about what you were building? And did that kind of negate how busy you were? How was that time for you? It was exciting. I mean, I think when I speak to people about, you know, what are the things that you need to start a business, one of the things I say is you have to love what you're doing because you have to do a lot of it, especially in that period where you have to have cash flow somewhere and insurance somewhere and also um, bandwidth to run the business. I can't imagine working that hard now, you know, because they were often... 15, 16 hour days. And that just, it takes a lot to be able to do that. It's, it's a bit like raising children. You're most suited to it when you're younger because you have the energy to get up and get up early and work late and put kids to bed and, you know, do all the make dinner, all the stuff families have to do and then go back to work. I mean, I've, I've started a business and I felt that same sense of exhaustion as though I had had a kid. So I can't imagine what it was like yeah. to have a kid and start a business and be working. I'm curious about the transition from that time to a more stable time. What did growth look like in those early days? We tried to be at least a little bit thoughtful about growth so that we could have enough equipment as a brewery we are constrained by the size. Typically, it's the brew house that drives the size of the rest of the brewing operations. And that takes money because you're one size and you've figured out how to, you know, purchase your brew house, how to capitalize that. And if you hit the top of that capacity and you want to grow more, you then have to figure out how to do that again. So we were thoughtful about that process. We pretty quickly, even at our house, we had a couple of employees. So, um, you know, Jeff and I would be sitting exhausted in the living room and one of our co-workers, whose name was Mark, would walk through the living room into the kitchen, get out the Cuisinart, blend a bunch of cherries to be able to put cherries in, in fermentation with old cherry, which was one of the beers we made then. And you just sort of like, you know, I just remember kind of looking at him and thinking, I'm just so tired, I can't really even do anything other than wave hello as he goes by. So, you know, it was, it was definitely a bootstrapped operation that we stepped up over time. We did, in our second round of capitalizing the business, got a small bank loan, and we found a lender who would put together a lease for us to buy new equipment. So, you know, we were beginning then the process of more planning, more staffing, but we still installed everything ourselves, you know, did all of the stuff that we had to do to grow the business. And do you consider the first round the second mortgage on your home, or was it second mortgage on your home and then a first round and then a second round? After the initial brewery in the basement, which was the second mortgage on our home, 
we started to use more traditional bank financing. But I think that's an important thing to talk about with business people because I see fellow brewers who capitalize their businesses with lots of investors. Well, then those investors want their money. You know, they're not in this typically, unless it's like your mom. You know, most people are investing because they expect a return, which really takes control out of your hands in a lot of ways. And so for us, we always used banking as that source of capitalization because the bank doesn't want to run your business. They want you to run your business well and pay back their money. And the thing that you get with that, in addition to a fairly silent partner, is the ability to be in control of what happens with the business. So you have no private investors on your cap table? Well, now I have all of my coworkers. But yes, in those days, it was all traditional financing. Um, so speaking of your coworkers, New Belgium is often regarded as one of the best places to work in the United States. And thank you. Yeah, thank you for creating this incredible place. I'm I'm curious about how you how you thought about that from the beginning in terms of the types of people that you were looking to hire, and then as you built this, how intentional were you about the culture, and how did you just how did you think about creating such an incredible place to work? We started by hiring homebrewers because they love beer. So they were willing to do a lot of work. Brewing and bottling is not a process that you can say, oh, well, you know, we've been here eight hours, so we'll just leave it and come back tomorrow. You have to get to the end of it. And in those old days, sometimes that was a very long time. And so we hired people who loved beer. And then our next sort of strategy was hire people that they knew because they wouldn't want to recommend somebody that wasn't a good worker. So that was sort of the next wave of people that we began to hire at New Belgium. And because of my social work background, it was important to me, one, to acknowledge that it took all of us to get this work done. Two, I recognize that most people want to do good work. And it's not a big stretch to make work meaningful for people. It's a combination of trusting them a lot, helping them to understand where the business is going, developing a community of people where the expectation is that we are going to care about one another and we're going to have one another's backs and we're going to really try to have authentic, meaningful relationships with one another. Sometimes I think about it in terms of like you can weave sheets and you have a warp and a weft and they're all pretty similar or you can weave fiber art and there are pieces in there that are totally different. And relationships that are interesting and real have a lot of fiber art in them because it's not all pretty. Because sometimes you have to say like, hey, you didn't show up. And someone else had to stay longer. There's a whole breadth of those kinds of difficult conversations that you have to have with people. But you have to have them so that you can have real relationships. Later on, we opened up the books to our coworkers, so everyone knew where the money went. 
They participated in building the strategy, so they knew where we were going. We had a set of a vision that was a set of like core values, a purpose, why we existed all, and the thing we were going to do that was going to be, you know, our mission in the world. So that combination creates a lot of alignment. I also did that because Jeff and I were married, and if we were going to go on a vacation, the same vacation, we needed to be able to rely on our coworkers. And part of what that does is to say to people, you've got this. I trust you. I know you can do this. We gave you the tools. You'll make good decisions. So when we added ownership to that, that combination of transparency and trust and a stake in the outcome and a really good sense of where the business was going was just like crazy powerful. So we talked to a fair amount of businesses that use open book management and we have a lot of readers say like, I could never do that. What advice do you have for people who are considering or like on the fence around deploying open book management? So I have a story about that actually. Every year we had a retreat at New Belgium. The first year it was just Jeff and me. The second year it was our one coworker and Jeff and me. And in 1995 or 96 at our retreat, I had read The Great Game of Business by Jack Stack. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to give everyone a little quiz. And everyone got a piece of paper and it said, we've taken in $100 in revenue and we have paid for raw materials, we've paid for labor, we've paid for excise tax, we've paid for all the things that the brewery needs to pay for, how much money do we have left over? And we asked people to sort of guess how much was raw materials, how much was labor, and they said that our net profit out of $100 in revenue was $60 or a 60% net margin which you look at me with surprise because if you've run a business, you're like, wow, wouldn't that be fabulous to have a 60% net margin? Not, you know, maybe Pet Rocks, maybe they managed a margin <laughs> like that. But that's when I knew people are making stories about where this money goes. And generally when people are making unfounded stories, they're not usually good stories. They're not usually to your benefit. And so it really made me realize there's the story and then there's the reality. And the reality is a lot more compelling and it gives us a lot more to work with too because now I can say, so here's the reason that we're really trying not to have overtime anymore. Look at our labor costs this month per barrel versus last month per barrel. And we spent a lot of time working with people on financial literacy, because you have to have people really understand we are an asset-intensive business. We have to have some money left over to be able to invest in the next equipment that we need to produce world-class beer. My only sort of end to that story is if you're a business where a lot of the net profit of the organization goes out to you, then I can kind of understand why you might say, I don't really feel comfortable with my coworkers seeing 
that I take a large chunk of the net profits for myself. But if you're a business where the net profits are used a dollar per barrel for philanthropy, some extra amount of money to invest in renewable energy, money to be spent on things like education and pizza and, you know, all the things that we got to make choices about. I think that it's a fabulous tool. And so you went from this kind of trusting your coworkers to having your coworkers own the company. And I would love to hear the story from you of how you gave the company to your New Belgium coworkers. Well, I didn't give it to them. I sold it to them. And I think that's an important distinction because for me, it was really important that they have essentially the burden of having to be owners. Because otherwise, you know, we are always sort of trying to hit the sweet spot between rights and responsibilities with ownership. And if there are no responsibilities, like we have debt to pay, she sold us the company and we owe her money then it's all just sort of this kind of unrealistic gravy. So the first 10%, Jeff and I actually did give to our coworkers through a phantom stock plan because we wanted to take 10% of our total pot of ownership and acknowledge to our coworkers that we knew it took all of us to make this work. We also did that because S-Corps, which is what we are now and were then, we're not allowed to have employee stock ownership plans or ESOPs. So then the IRS changed those laws and S-Corps could be an ESOP. So we sold our coworkers 22% more and melded the 10% in. So then they owned 32% of the company. We went along that way until 2009 when Jeff and I divorced The company and I bought his shares back and retired them. That lowered the denominator, so that raised their percentage of ownership. So then they own 41%. So there I was sitting right at the spot between, you know, nine percentage points between minority and majority. And the board and I were talking about what do you do about founder succession and liquidity planning and all of those things. And we looked at a lot of options and decided that we were really well suited to this idea of 100% ownership. And so my boys, who were also shareholders, and I decided to sell to our coworkers. So we got them all together for our annual retreat. I had had an artist in Boulder make these cardboard envelopes, and inside was a letter from me and then a little pocket, and they were tied up, and they had a little beer cap on them. And everyone got one, and I said, please don't open them until we're ready. I said, I've sold the company, and I want I'm this will tell you who, and I want you to know. So I said, go ahead and open them, and they open them, and so then you pull out the mirror, and so they're looking at themselves, right? And I said, it's you. And that was pretty great. Yeah. So do you own any part of New Belgium today? I'm an ESOP account holder, just as is everyone else. And I also have a fairly large chunk of debt with the company, as do my kids. And so if another business owner came to you and said, 
I want to do that thing that you did, what advice would you give them? I think that there are lots of different ways to do some form of shared equity. I am not always sure, given how much money goes into investing in new equipment here at New Belgium, I'm not always sure that the ESOP was the best option because you've got a lot of mouths to feed. You've got all of these people. So when someone retires, I mean, we have people who have more than a million dollars in their ESOP trust accounts. So they need to be paid. And we also need to invest in new can lines and new fermentation technology and all kinds of things across the brewery and brand building. So I think it's good to look at a variety of different kinds of equity sharing or even profit sharing, which is not a form of ownership, but it is a way to sort of bring everyone together to say, okay, you all know, you know, what the scorecard looks like if we hit this mark everyone pro rata based on your percentage of the total wage pool, everyone will get profit sharing. So there are a few ways to have the effect of sharing in the building of equity and wealth. And that for me was the driving force, especially today, even more so than when we started New Belgium. It's difficult for people in this country to build equity and to own something. And especially, you know, we employ a broad swath from unskilled to semi-skilled labor all the way through PhDs in microbiology. And not all of the people in a brewery are going to really be able to share in all of this bounty that we have in the United States. And that was important to me. So I, I read an article that talked about the owner of Sierra Nevada and how he, uh, yeah, Good so guy. how Ken could at this point be worth a billion dollars. And then it referenced you and how you had made this decision uh, to make New Belgium and ESOP and how you could have been so much wealthier. And I'm curious about this concept of enough wealth. How did you get to the point where you kind of came to terms with feeling, even though you probably could have been wealthier, how did you make that decision to say, I have enough? Well, it was really rooted in that notion of broadly shared equity. And I have enough wealth. I will never want for the basics in life. And I'm interested in how one can use business as a laboratory, a learning laboratory for ways that we participate in the well-being of society broadly. I think that that used to be more common in the United States than it is now. I think more leaders and CEOs thought about doing the most good that they could with their business opportunity. And I think it's important that, you know, we have so many problems to solve in this country. It can't just be government and it can't just be NGOs. It really is going to take everyone to put their shoulder to the wheel. And, and I'm interested in that. 
So one of the things that you mentioned was succession. And so over the last few years, there's been movement in the upper ranks here. And I'm curious about how that's been for you, handing the baton off to a new CEO and then coming back on a CEO. And how has that all worked for you? And what recommendations do you have around succession planning? Well, it's not been without its, you know, fits and starts for sure. And I think that it's important to have had lots of conversations. I also think, I mean, you can't plan for everything and you think you've got it all figured out and then it turns out, you know, you're surprised. And again, I have tenacity and I'm willing to do what it takes. I can work hard. And so... We pick ourselves up, we dust ourselves off, and we try again. And so now we have a new CEO. He's actually been here almost a year, and he's fabulous. And we have a new VP of marketing who is also fabulous and feels just really consistent. He gets the brand New Belgium and who we are. So, you know, one door closes and another opens, and I think... You just have to kind of believe that and press on. One of the things I heard you mention twice now is kind of your ability to have grit and to keep going. I'm curious around leadership in general over the last you know, multitude of years that you've been leading this company. What are the attributes for you that you think have made you the most successful? I try to be really authentic and honest with my coworkers. I'm more private than people might know, and so I try to make sure we have good relationships with one another and that people can ask me pretty much anything, and I'll answer their questions. I'm not one to kind of hang out downstairs chatting my coworkers up necessarily, although I always enjoy the time that we spend together. But I think that feeling that you can count on me to be honest is a strong part of leadership. I also think being able to ask tough questions. Sometimes leadership isn't that much fun because sometimes you have to ask the awkward question that people maybe don't want to answer. One of the things I love about leadership is that it's often about all of the parts so it's a, it's looking at all of the parts at the same time and figuring out how they fit and where there's misfit and figuring out how to improve the big picture system and i really like that i think i'm pretty good at it and i think that you know you have to be able to to have grit to get over those times where you think this isn't going well i think these people don't like me we failed at something and just keep going. And I think that's core to leadership as well. So one of the things I heard you say there a little bit further back was leadership isn't always fun. And we talked to a lot of leaders who are just full bore struggling or burning out or exhausted yeah. and they're just barely getting through it with how much responsibility they have on their shoulders. So I'm curious about for you, what practices did you develop throughout your career to be able to manage just the sheer amount of stress that a leader typically has to have? 
You know, I try to live a fairly balanced life. I, I Some of these are just sort of little stupid things, but I, I'm a big believer in getting enough rest. And so I really try to make sure that I eat well and get enough rest and exercise. And I really probably didn't have as many people to talk to as would have been good for me. Leaders and CEOs aren't always the same thing. But I do think that top of an organization position really limits how many people you can talk to about particular things. And it's good to be able to just sort of run through what's on your mind or even something like I was in a meeting the other day where I was setting an expectation with someone and I was trying to be warm and still firm And when that person left the room, I asked the other person in the room, was I too hard on them? Because sometimes you don't know, and it's just helpful to have someone be a mirror for you. So all of those things are helpful. So if one of your children came to you and wanted to start their own business, what are the top pieces of advice that you would give them? Well, both of my kids have come to me and said, I don't want to work as hard as you work. So, <laughs> so the, the theoretical question would be, you know, it would surprise me. They grew up here, so they've watched every moment of this. So I think they have sort of lived the handbook for starting a business. But I would say, be sure you love whatever it is you're going to do, because you have to do a lot of it. I'd say getting a handle on what's really going to matter to you while you do it, having that foundational set of guiding principles so that you're not just kind of saying yes to everything or, you know, doing things where later you think, oh, that was ethically way out of the bounds of what I feel good about, whatever it is. I think for us, having a set of guiding principles before we ever made any beer has been huge in our practice of being progressive, sustainable business leaders. And to put you entirely on the spot here, can you share with us what those values are? Is there one that you resonate with most? Probably making sure that our relationships among us are both authentic and skillful. Because I think that's the engine for a lot of the other work. I'm also curious for you right now, what is the most important thing in your life? What are you kind of just on fire about right now? In a business sense, we have branched out to a project in San Francisco that I'm working on. And it's just, I'm literally immersed in it. And so it's a lot on my mind. More globally, I have a family foundation Both of my sons, my boyfriend, his daughter are involved in that. And we're really interested in regenerative capitalism, how we take the equity that we built in New Belgium that we then received from the sale and invest in both nonprofit straight up grant making and for-profit businesses that sit kind of at that intersection of sustainability and for-profit business that are trying to be profitable and solve problems. So we're working on a lot of those things, and I find that really interesting. I have been able to convince my kids 
that policy is a really important part of a holistic approach to the kinds of change that I hope to see because policy is kind of where it's at. And so you have to have good policymakers to get the outcomes that you're hoping for. So I'm also active not in politics from a, I don't, I don't want to be a politician, but I do participate in the process and try to support people who are interested in employee ownership, for instance, and environmental stewardship and some amount of social justice. Speaking of all of the issues that we are currently facing today as a society, I'm curious, what is giving you hope? I hear other people say this too, but I am hopeful when I talk to my kids, when I talk to other younger people. I think one of the things that always amazes me when I go to airports in most larger cities, in the U.S. especially, there is a huge acculturation of society going on now. And I think there are probably people who aren't really so in touch with that because maybe they're not out in some of those urban areas throughout the U.S. But that gives me hope. It also is just energizing. Just people who have had a lot of life experiences that are very multicultural and they're bright and they're doing interesting things and grabbing life and trying to give it their own flavor. This is the final question and probably the most important. Speaking of flavor, do you know if there's ever plans to bring back Coco Mole? Well, you know, we look back into the, the um, beers we've made machine fairly regularly. We do have an, a beer right now called Atomic Pumpkin. It's not the same, but it does have some of those spices and then also habanero in it. Well, Kim, we're delighted to have this yeah. time with you, and I know that our listeners are going to be so excited for this, so yeah. thank you for Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much. The World Changing Women's Podcast is brought to you by Conscious Company Media. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you could help us out by subscribing, rating, or leaving a review of this podcast. As a reminder, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at WCWPod. A huge special thanks to Kim Jordan. Also to Nina Bernardin, our incredible podcast manager, and our podcast partners on this, Story Pop. Join us next week for an interview with another world-changing woman. And thank you, as always, for listening. Listening.